Maybe you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ yet. Maybe you question all this or never, never been confronted by the gospel. How would you explain the fact that in Psalm 22, 1,000 years or so before it happened, there could be such detail about Christ's crucifixion, which wasn't even a form of punishment and penalty and death at that time, down to the detail that they would cast lots for His clothing. How do you explain the specificity of Isaiah 53 that reads like a newspaper account of the crucifixion and Christ's death and resurrection? Well, it's because God is in control. That is His Word. He was showing us of His Son to come who would come and save us. There's really no other explanation. They weren't using the vagaries of so-called psychics and modern-day people like that. It's a very specific detail on the Christ that would come. And why he would come. And he did come. And he came in a way that nobody was looking for him to come as the suffering servant. But the scriptures were looking for him to come that way. Think about these things. There is a Savior. And it is Christ. And everything attests to that fact. Pray into that. And by God's grace, seek him. And as scripture says, you will find just a bit of encouragement to pay close attention to God's Word that has been confirmed by the resurrection of Christ. We'll turn to Romans chapter 7. That was not the sermon. That was the pre-sermon. <laughs> just encourage us to think about what we're singing. Think about what we're reading. It's pretty amazing stuff. Okay, Romans chapter 7. We are... In beginning chapter 7 in our uh, study of the book of Romans, we'll set everything in context in a bit, but right now I'm just going to begin reading in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7 and read through verse 6 and pray. That's the text we'll look at, and then we'll set things in context before we look at that text. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Something else we should all know as believers, right? Paul is asking that question. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Thus far God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we're wasting our time if the Spirit doesn't bless the Word, the preaching and the hearing of the Word. So help us. Apply your words to our heart, Lord. Root and ground us in Christ. 
Help us, Lord, to know what it means to love you from a new heart. Lord, so help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Use me as an instrument in your hand. May your word go forth and be glorified. And touch all of us who are listening. And help us to hear it as the word. To believe it. To rest in you and to, 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 to seek to gain our understanding of this word so that we might live in its light. Lord, focus us from the smallest child to the oldest adult on your truth, which is your word. Blessed as it, as it is preached and heard. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Knowing your relationship to the law of the land is vital. For example, if you own a handgun in North Carolina, you may carry, openly carry that handgun without a concealed carry permit. Don't everybody come to church with your gun next week, but believe me, we have men who are designated for that here. But in North Carolina, you can open carry. But if you go down to South Carolina, you cannot open carry unless you have a concealed carry permit. Don't worry, the sermon's not about guns this morning. But you better not go to South Carolina assuming the same laws apply as in North Carolina. Because that could get you in real trouble. Misunderstanding your relationship to the, uh, to the law where you are can bring real trouble into your life. The same is true spiritually. Knowing your relationship to God's law is vital. How does the law of God apply to a believer in Christ? Does it apply? Paul's told us in 6.14, he says, Sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. What does that mean? Well, thankfully, Paul begins to expand on it in our text today, so we'll talk more about that today. And let me encourage you, as we're studying through the book of Romans and as we're studying um, through anything, See yourself as a student, not as a spectator. Take notes. Dig in. Review them later so that you may grow in grace. Write down any questions that you have. You know, we gain a lot by the Spirit's blessing sitting here listening to the Word preached and taught. But we gain so much more when we plow into it. And so I just encourage you to plow in to the study of God's Word. Well, how did we get here in the book of Romans? I'm going to be pretty general. Uh, all of the sermons are online if you want to go back and listen to more specifics. But Paul has writing to the Romans. He's expressed his love to the Roman Christians. He's expressed his desire to come and preach the gospel to them, which is the subject of the letter that he wrote. So he told them that in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, that the gospel is his thesis, right? And then he begins in chapter 18 of 1 up through chapter 20 of, of, uh, verse, of chap verse 20 of chapter 3, establishing the fact that everybody needs a Savior. Everybody falls short. We're all sinners, Jew and Gentile, 
fall short and need a Savior. And then he began at verse 21 of chapter 3, showing that Christ is that Savior and that we are. The glorious truth from 3 through 5 is that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God, that it is a free gift to us. Justification is an act of God's grace wherein He pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Great news, best news you'll ever hear. What can I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be cleansed of your sin, clothed in His righteousness, adopted into the family of God as a child of God. And at that point, God begins to transform us. So we pick it up in chapter 6 with Paul giving us a, a, a theology of how do we grow in grace, pointing us to our union with Christ. We've been united to Him through faith in His death, burial, and resurrection, right? We've been renewed and enabled to grow in grace. Renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled to more and more die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, we're talking about growth in grace now. We're talking about what's called our sanctification. See how simple these things really are? Justification is pretty simple. Just marry and know that definition. It'll, it'll, it'll fit for you and explain Scripture. And then in, in chapter 6, we've begun to talk about, okay, what difference does the gospel make? How does it change us? What will our lives look like if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? So like I say, verses 1 through 11 is a theology of our sanctification, which he ends with telling us to, to adopt that theology in verse 11. So he says, you must consider yourselves. You, who's yourselves? You who are believing in Christ, you who are justified, must consider yourselves in Christ via your union with Christ through faith, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin's reign over you. And now you're, you're in a different kingdom. You're alive to Christ's reign over you. So it's not an impossible thing to follow Him and to grow in grace. And then he begins to apply it in verse 12. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And that's where he says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law and under grace. So we don't sin because we're under grace in that section about uh, uh, slavery. And we saw that illustration and looked at that. And then in chapter, verse, uh, chapter 1 of... of uh, I'm getting those crossed up this morning. In chapter 7, verse 1, he goes back to chapter 6, 14 to explain that verse in more detail. He's opening up that more here. So that's, that's, that's why it's your memory verse. We get a little more insight. Well, Paul, what does it mean that, that we're not under law, but that we're under grace? And that's what he begins to break out here in chapter 7. Uh, the, the structure is really simple in this text right here, verses 1 to 6. You know, and you guys who went through the preaching class, you know, you, you state the truth, you illustrate the truth, and you apply the truth. That's exactly what's in the text. I don't have to do that work very much for you this morning because that's what he did. He states the principle in verse 1. He illustrates it in verses 2 and 3, and then he applies it in 4 through 6. So my work is done. I may sit down. <laughs> But we're going to look at it. You know, a preacher's not just going to say my work is done when I'll sit down. <laughs> Titled it Law and Grace. 
And the main point, because of your union with Christ. So again, we're speaking to Christians. And look, there are no commands in this section. This is all truth that he's plowing into our hearts. So it's more theology of sanctification. So that when we get to those specific commands, we have the ground set for them, right? Because of your union with Christ. If you don't understand what that means, go back and listen to some of the sermons from starting at chapter 6, verse 1, and, and we'll hopefully explain that to you better. But because of your union with Christ, here's what's true of you. You've also died to the law. Remember we said we died to sin. Here we've died to the law so that you serve in the newness of the Spirit. And hopefully by, by the end of the sermon you'll have more a better idea of what we mean when we say we've died to the law and we serve in the Spirit. But first, look at, look at what he states in, in uh, verses 1 to 3. He really states the principle and then illustrates it with, with marriage in 2 and 3. Death terminates the law's reign over you. Death terminates the law's reign over you. So the principle is stated in verse 1. Or do, do you not know brothers? So when, when he says, do you not know, he's saying this is something you should know. This is something that you've been taught, in other words. This is not new. Uh, this is water that's under the bridge. You should remember this. You've been, you've, been, you've been taught this. Do you not know brothers? Now when he says brothers, it's not just the dudes in the church. This is a generic, right? It's talking about the church. Men and women, like brethren. King James probably a better word. Brethren. Brethren includes everybody in the church. So everybody in the church... This sermon is for you this morning. Do you not know, brethren? Do you not know, church? For I am speaking to those who know the law. So, so the Gentiles as well as the Jews have a sufficient understanding in Rome to get what he's saying. And when he says law, I'm not going to go into that a lot this morning because it's very clear what he's talking about, especially once we get to verse 7 and talks about you shall not covet. Ding, 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 ding. Ten commandments. The law we're talking about is what we're talking about here. For I am speaking to those who know the law. That Here we go. Here's the principle. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's, that's pretty clear, right? We're, we're bound by the law as long as we live. The law, the Mosaic law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. By the way, if you struggle with that, Threefold separation of the word, you know, ceremonial, civil, moral. Um, that is a biblical, um, a biblical presentation of the uses of the law and the, what we find of the divisions of the law in the Old Testament. Uh, I think the book is called By the Finger of God that would clearly demonstrate that to you. But this morning we're talking about the moral law and how it applies to the Christian. And Paul says here that... The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Or in another translation, the law is master. The law is master over, over a person as long, only as long as he lives. What is that saying, only as long as he lives? Until he dies. The law is binding over a person, general until he dies. In other words, we're born and live under the law. We're born obligated 
to keep God's law perfectly to avoid the curse of the law. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them, Scripture says. God being our creator, we being the creature, we are born under obligation. What we find in the covenant of works of the garden to keep that law perfectly if we're going to have a relationship with God. We are born with an obligation to keep that law perfectly to avoid the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? The soul that sins shall die. Death. Physical death. Why is death in the creation? Well, sin. Read Genesis. It'll straighten it out pretty quickly. And then God's promise was death because of sin. So physically we die and spiritually we die. And so we reap the fruit of our sin, which is death, spiritual death, including what we would call condemnation, punishment, or hell. We deserve that. But we're all born obligated. We have a covenant obligation to God, our Creator, to keep His law. What does that mean? Just to externally keep it? What's the summary of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We're born with an obligation to love God by keeping His law. And that obligation continues until death and the judgment. How are you doing? You who are not trusting in Christ, you figure your good works will outweigh your bad. How are you doing? First commandment. Do you find, ever find your purpose in anything other, your highest purpose in anything other than the true and living God? Do you ever love anything more than you love Him? Obey anything more than you obey Him? See, I mean, we don't get out of the gate in the first commandment. We've not always worshipped His way. We have taken His name in vain. We've not honored Him on His day. We have been angry at people without a cause. We have looked on the other sex with lust. We have lied and stolen and desired what our neighbor has, thinking it will make us happy. See, we, see, we fall short. So if you not know Christ this morning, I just want you to know that if you go before the judgment bar of God and you count on your performance, it will be a horrible experience. As Isaiah says, all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Are we joyfully keeping God's law from birth. And see, Scripture answers these questions for us, doesn't it? The children come from the womb telling lies. They come from the womb. Mine! Right? Selfish. And a lot of people never grow out of that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and need a Savior. But the law continues to reign over us as master until we die. And then Paul illustrates that principle with marriage. And listen, this is not the end-all, be-all for marriage and divorce. There's more in Scripture about that, okay? You can't just go to this text and draw a hard line on marriage and divorce. That's not Paul's purpose in stating this. He's illustrating one point which is that the law reigns over us until we die. So look, look at verse 2 and 3. For a married woman, or, or flip it around, married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, 
But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. What is that saying? Have you ever been to a wedding? Have you ever heard, till death do us part? That's the goal. That's what we're shooting for. That's what, that's what you know, Christ said the goal was and what it says in Genesis. We're to be wed, united in wedding bliss or wedded bliss until death parts us. But if the spouse dies, you're free. So the marriage law binds one to their spouse. But if the spouse dies, obviously then you're set free from that covenant obligation. There's no sin in marrying again. Some of us can't imagine doing that. But there's no sin in it. I hope you have that kind of marriage. I hope you're sowing into that kind of marriage. I hope you can't imagine life without your spouse. And if not, there's some repenting for you to do. Don't try to blame it on them. Sorry, I'm getting into marriage counseling. <clears throat> Verse 3, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another while her husband is alive. And the beauty of God's grace to the Samaritan woman. <laughs> Read that story, John 4. But if, if her husband dies, she is freed from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. What's the point? The law is master over us. We're under covenant obligation to our spouse until death, illustrating the fact that the law is master over us while we live. We have to die to be free from the law, being under the law, for the law to be master over us. In order for that not to be true, we have to die. We are under covenant obligation to keep that law from our hearts, out of love for God, perfectly in thought, word, and deed, until we die. The only way out of that is death. Feel the weight of that? You're like, well, wait a minute. I'm not dead yet. But I'm not under that law for pleasing God. How how we explain that? Thank you for asking. Look at the second point here. Now, the first one is simple. We move through it fast because it's simply the fact that we're under obligation. We're under the law. Law is our master as long as we live until we die. Now, point number two. You died to the law to live to Christ. Obviously, the you there that we're speaking to, just like who Paul is speaking to, is believers. This is not true of you if you're not a believer in Christ. You're still under the law with an obligation to fulfill it perfectly if you will avoid the curse of the law and and enjoy a relationship with God. And Scripture says you failed, so we need you to adopt that. But this is speaking to believers. You died to the law to live for Christ. So the principle is applied to the church in verses 4 through 6. Look what he says. Likewise, my brothers. So he's Connecting with that illustration of marriage and the spouse dying and being set free from the law of marriage in that instance. Likewise, my brothers or brethren. Likewise, church. Now what? Look at this. Just, just look at this glorious statement. Likewise, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus, and we've already talked about this in chapter 6, when He died, you died. 
When he was raised, you were raised. And we'll get to that in a minute. You, believer, have died to the law as your master. You, believer, are no longer under the law. If you like the covenantal language, the covenant of works has been fulfilled for you. And the penalty has been paid for you. How in the world does that happen? Well, remember our union with Christ versus starting early off in chapter 6. Covenantally united with Christ so that when He came and lived, He fulfilled all righteousness for us. His righteousness goes for us. When He died on that cross, He was doing that for us. And He paid the penalty for our condemnation, what we deserve to pay because we've broken God's law. And he went into the grave and under the power of death for a time and he was raised from the grave gloriously proving that it's all true. You, believer, have died to the law. I don't feel like I died to the law. I don't care. I have those days too. But if you're trusting in Jesus, you either have all righteousness fulfilled for you or no righteousness fulfilled for you. He either died for all of your sins or none of them. There's no middle ground here. When Christ died, believer, you died, and it has nothing to do with your feelings. Objective truth to stand on, the rock you can stand on when the winds of change blow in your heart. You are believing in Christ by God's grace, and when He died, you died. Therefore, you died to the law. And he says here, look what he says. That's not all he says. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Through him as the propitiation for our sins. Everything Christ was, was as the second Adam. Therefore, for his people. Was and is. Right? And, and we are united to him by faith. And so that he paid the penalty for our sin. We were united to Him in His death and resurrection. And that's exactly how the chapter 6 started out. In verse 4 of chapter 6, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. And that's not talking about the water. Spirit, just union. And go back and listen to that sermon. We were buried with Him in baptism, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. See, Christ came. Why did Christ come? And why did He not just appear on the cross? No, He, he identified with us in every way, yet without sin. He was willing to humiliate Himself. Imagine going from the throne in heaven to a feed trough in Bethlehem. That's humiliation. But he, Son of God, perfect Son of God, took to Himself a true human nature. One person, two natures forever, the God-man. He came and lived under His own law for a time to fulfill all righteousness for us. And then He took our guilt and went to that cross to die to pay the penalty for our sins. And He was raised from the grave for our justification. Paul tells us what it means 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised the third day. And that salvation is through trusting in Him and Him alone. Muhammad didn't die for your sins. Buddha didn't die for your sins. Whichever one of them you're talking about. Krishna, name the false gods. None of them lived for you, died for you, can guarantee you eternal life. In fact, they're all false. I know our day and time doesn't like me to speak like that. But Christ spoke like that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you will make it to heaven, you will get over yourself and trust in the Savior that God has provided because He has proved Himself true. Prophecy, resurrection, testimony. On we could go. You died through the body of of Christ. Keep going. Look at look in verse 4. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. There's a purpose in that. Watch this. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit to God. The purpose was that you might be set free from condemnation. Live in acceptance. Live in joy. Live in love of God. And therefore bear fruit for God. And literally in verse 4, it's you have been, you were made to die. You were made to die. It's a passive verb. Some of your translations may reflect that better than others. You were made to die for the law. Believer, these things are true of you. Who made you die to the law if it wasn't you? It's of Him. He made you die to the law through the body of Christ. God is your Savior. Salvation is of the Lord. He chose you, gave you to Christ. Christ came to live and die and be raised for you. The Spirit has applied that gospel to you so that you turned and trusted in Christ, proving that this passive verb here, He made you to die. You didn't make yourself die. God saved you. He made you, united you to Christ so that when Christ died, you died. You were covenantally in Christ when He lived, died, and was raised. You were chosen. How do I know? Because you believe the gospel. That's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. We know you were chosen because look what happened in your life. You want to know if you're elect? Are you trusting Jesus? Well, I'm not trusting Jesus, so I must not be elect. You don't know that until you take your last breath. But God has given His Son. He has raised Him from the grave. He sacrificed Him for our sin. And He commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in Him. You're under that. If you will turn and trust in that, He will receive you. Trust in Christ today. But look what, look, look what it says we died to. You died to the law. You died to the law in Christ. When he died, you died. And the, the, the truth about that is you died to the law. 
So what that means is I no longer have to even think about the law. I can live ever how I want to and I'm going to heaven. As the antinomian would cry, freed from the law, oh happy condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. No. That is not what this means. We died to the obligation to obey the law perfectly in order to avoid the curse and enjoy the blessing of a relationship with God. We died to the law as master. We died to the law's power to condemn. Maybe this will help. Let me review with you the three uses of the law. Again, true theology, biblical theology, reformed theology, ever how you want to look at it, sees these three uses in Scripture. So I hope this helps you. But there are three ways that the law, God's law, commandments, ten commandments, and everything flows out of that. His commandments are used. But the first use is as a mirror. The first use of the law is a mirror. It reflects and requires perfect obedience under the threat of death. It perfectly reveals sin down to the minute details and shows us our need of a Savior. See, this is the first encounter we have with the law as a creature. We are born under the law. That's what that's talking about. God requires that perfect obedience under the threat of death. Reveals our sin. Shows us that we need a Savior. First and foremost, the law is a mirror that we might trust in Christ and not ourselves. Number two, I, 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 I said the law is a magistrate. What is that? Think governor, mayor, think civil ruler. The law is a magistrate. It restrains evil in society and secures civil order when followed. And evil flourishes and civil order is destroyed when it's not. As this country has stepped away from God. A lot of you are not old enough to remember this. There used to be prayer at the opening of school. There was announcements in prayer. The Ten Commandments were on the wall in our schools. Why? The law of God was taught in the land so that it might do this very thing. The founders believed in God. They believed in the power of His Word. And the worst problems we had under that before this cultural slide away from God was maybe popping chewing gum or talking in class or fighting at recess. But no, no, no. We, we, we have this foolish understanding of separation of church and state which is not even in the Constitution. So we're going to take everything religious out of the schools and we'll be okay. We're going to take everything religious out of the culture. We're not going to listen to God anymore. We're going to do it our own way. People don't even know who they are anymore. Because when you reject God and His ways, you step into idolatry and you bring judgment. This nation is under judgment right now. It may not make it. Because it has suppressed the truth of the knowledge of God and gone after idols. It has kicked God. Well, you can't really kick Him out. 
but it is just chosen not to live under His blessing and live under His curse by rejecting His ways. And now kids are killing people on the street. The family is under attack. You tell me we're better off since we kicked the law out of the, out of the culture? I'm telling you we're not. The second use of the law is to restrain evil and secure civil order. And that's what, by God's grace, it does in, in the land of a people whose God is the Lord and who takes His word seriously. That may make you mad, and I won't want it to be. I love you, but it's true. Number three, the third use of the law is a moral guide. It guides the believer into righteousness and what it means to love God and neighbor. Do you see those three uses? Mirror, show us the ick of ourselves so that we'll turn and trust in Christ. Shows us that we fall short. It will produce civil order if we'll honor God and put it out there. And seek to obey it. And it's also a moral guide to the believer. So when Paul says the believer has died to the law, he means that first use. That's what he means. We're no longer under that covenant of works obligation to keep that law perfectly if we will have a relationship with God. Why? Because Christ kept it perfectly. He fulfilled that for us. Christ died and paid the penalty for our sins. The law is no longer our master. Christ is. You can see it in the text. Using the look in, 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 in verse 3, she said, if she lives with another, she's not, she's not an adulteress. Now in verse 4, you, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you, believer, may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. Christ took care of the curse for us because we'd all failed in that first use. But that doesn't mean the law no longer applies to society. It doesn't mean the law no longer applies to believers. Read the rest of your New Testament and you'll see Paul and others applying the commandments to the church. Even down to the children. Obey your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. And honor doesn't mean grudgingly obey, kids. With joy, out of love. For God first, then for them. You're to honor them. I know it's going to, until you get a, probably in your upper 20s, you're going to think they don't know anything. And then your brain will fully develop and you'll realize, oh, yeah. You'll start raising your own kids and going back and thinking. You'll think a few things. You'll, number one, you'll look at your parents and say, these are not the people that raised me because they let grandkids get away with a lot more. But you'll start to see the wisdom in some of the things they're telling you now. But, but obey, honor them because of God's love for you. And that's another sermon. Christ lived for us that we might be justified and that we might bear fruit to God. Look back at verse 4. So that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. That's Jesus. That we might bear fruit for God. We died to the law so that we might be joined to another master. Christ is now our covenant master, our head. We follow Him, our gracious Lord, who was raised from the dead, proving the gospel true. We were raised with Him, verse 4, to new life. In Him, therefore, we bear fruit to God. So how do we bear fruit to God? What is fruit to God? It's loving God. It's joyful obedience to God. 
His commandments are no longer a burden, John says. We follow Christ by loving Him and hearing Him and obeying Him with joy and growing in it. We follow Christ as He blazed the trail of keeping those commandments with joy, fulfilling all righteousness for us. The law of Christ is not something different than the law of God. It's just the law interpreted and applied in Christ Jesus. I mean, He said if you relax one of the least of these commandments... But if you teach them, you're great in the kingdom of heaven. We don't teach them as a legalistic rule that we might be saved by them, but we teach them as following our Savior who walked in them. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to hear what He says and obey what He says and do what He did. I mean, this is all coming out of Scripture, and I'm willing to talk about it. It's just a lot here. We belong to Christ now. Christ is our Master. We've been raised with Him so that we might bear fruit to God. So how do you bear fruit? By following Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now He's going to give us a contrast. Of what He said in 6.14, Under the law, under grace. You kind of see that broken out here in verses 5 and 6. He says, For while you were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. We, we heard that back in the end of chapter, chapter 5, that it incites, in the unbeliever, it incites sin. For while we were living in the flesh or while we were lost, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members bearing fruit for death. Sin's fruit is death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Hear that language again? Master, captive, which constrained us. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Verse 5 and 6, slavery under the law and sin, slavery under Christ and righteousness. It contrasts being under the law with under grace. So the lost, verse 5, as who we were before we came to Christ, he says, while we were living in the flesh, he means while we were lost, the lost are in slavery to sin, under the law, bearing fruit for death, no hope. But in verse 6, he says, but now, what do you mean but now? You're no longer lost. You've come to faith by God's grace in Christ. You are a new creation in Him now. You're a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. You are saved. But now we were released from the law. It's no longer our master. Right? We walk in newness of life in the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, what would it mean? The law was master. Perfect law. Think about Old Covenant versus New Covenant. That's what we're talking about. Think about under the Old Covenant. Where was the law? Where was this authority of God's law? It, it was an external authority, wasn't it? It was an external authority. Under the, it threatened and condemned and incited sin, but it gave no power to obey. See, the law points out our sins and condemns us for it and threatens the curse at when it's our master. The law without the Spirit inevitably, inevitably results in sin. The law without the Holy Spirit inevitably results in sin. Look at Jesus' enemies. Who were they? People who claimed to follow the law. Who were very detailed and minute and legalistic and, and just hated Him and hated the truth He was preaching. The law without the Spirit 
produces sin and fruit for death. But verse 6, now in the new covenant, I'm, I'm going to give you some homework. This is why I say the elect take notes. One way you know. <laughs> but you, at least write this down and go read it. Jeremiah 31, 33 and surrounding. Go read how he describes the new covenant. Go read how Jeremiah describes what God's going to do. He says the law, he would make the law internal. He will write it on the heart. Now look, go read that. It's not a different law. It's not a watered down law. It's not 9 out of 10. Right? It's the same law, but now it's going to be an internal reality in the new covenant. It'll be written on a new heart that now loves it and is empowered by the Spirit to joyfully obey and keep it. Then we become more like the psalmist in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. John, the Apostle John, go read him. He says, loving the Lord is keeping His commandments. Out of joy because we love Him. God says that what's going to happen when He converts people, when He brings them under the new covenant, is that He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit and put that law on their heart. Now their hearts are tuned toward the law so that it grieves them when they disobey and excites them when they are able to obey and grow in grace. And also, write this down too. Ezekiel 36, 25 and following. <clears throat> See, this is all stuff that we as Gentiles are grafted into. The promises to the Jews, the salvation promise in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 25 and following. God promises to cleanse us from our sin. Give us a new heart. Put His Spirit within us. So, why? So that His people will obey. Joyfully. There's no justification for a continued willful disobedience after coming to Christ. So for the believer, the law now is that third use, that loving moral guide. It's not our master anymore, but it guides us into the path. You hear this? The paths of righteousness. What are the paths of righteousness? It's following behind Jesus in the paths of God's law because we love God because of His grace in our lives. It involves repenting when we fail and purposing new obedience. We'll be perfect when we're glorified. The paths of righteousness are the same paths Jesus walked and they're the paths that we walk when we follow Him. I mean, look back in 6, 22 and 23. We end and you can go back and listen to these sermons. But now that you have been set free from sin, see, you're free from sin's tyranny. Sin no longer reigns over you. You're not under the mastery of the law anymore. You're, you're, Christ is your master. It says you've become slaves of God in Christ now. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, God's work of grace where He's sanctifying us, and its end is eternal life. God sanctifies every soul He saves. We see that in Romans 8 when we get there. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you turn from self and going your own way and, and to turn to God and receive the, what He says about you, that you're a sinner who needs a Savior, and receive His Son? Will you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, these promises are true of you. You're not under law, but under grace. 
and therefore sin will not reign over you. Give me, let me give you a few points of application and I'm done. Number one, and you need to hear this, there's confusion in the church and there's confusion in the culture. The law is not the gospel. Love the Lord is not the gospel. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself is not the gospel. That's the law. That's what we fail to do. That's why we need a Savior. And then He works what that in us when we come to faith in Him. Love of neighbor, love of God should be the fruit of the gospel, but it's not telling us how to be justified. The gospel is Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, He was raised the third day, and salvation comes through trusting Him. And in order to trust Him, you have to repent of unbelief and turn to belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're trusting Christ alone, God has begun a good work in you, and He will finish it. But the law is not the gospel. Second, try to draw a picture here. The second thing I want you to know, the law is not a ladder we climb to heaven, but it's a path we follow in the footsteps of Christ. I'm talking to believers. And I just kind of, I crunched that a little bit. The law is not a ladder we climb to heaven, but it is a path we follow in the footsteps of Christ. In Christ, the law, listen, the law is not the means of our sanctification. It's the measure. It shows us. Even as a believer, I look at the law, and if I look at it without... (laughs) I need to look at it through Christ, but if I just objectively look at it in all its detail, I can see whether or not I'm growing to be more like that. Sanctification is God making us like Christ. What did Christ do? Christ walked in these paths perfectly. The law... It's not a ladder we climb to heaven. It's a path we follow behind Jesus or in the footsteps of Christ or with Christ, whatever language you prefer. I want to throw this in because it's the passive in the text. Look at me. If you're trusting in Christ Jesus this morning, it is because God loved you first and made you die to the law and united through union with Christ, made you trust with Christ. He chose you and saved you, and He lets you know that that you might have security in Him. So just rest. I I want your feet to be firmly planted on Christ. I want them to be firmly planted on the sovereignty of God. I want you to know that every scintilla of your salvation is God. He saves us. Even the faith we have is a gift from Him. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and dead people do nothing. But the gospel comes in, the Spirit blesses that gospel so that we are born again. We can see the kingdom, we turn, and we trust in Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, just rest in this. It's because God loved you first, and you were passive. He made you to die to the law. He gave you to Christ. It's of Him that you were saved. And listen, fourthly, this, the whole point of this passage is for you, the believer, to adopt the gospel fact that you are no longer in Adam, but now you're in Christ. And there's a lot of truth that goes along with that. <clears throat> Therefore, you are no longer under the law. You're no longer under condemnation. You're no longer continually falling short, lost, without strength, without hope. But God... But you are in Christ Jesus. 
<clears throat> you are under grace. You are forgiven and righteous. You are a new creation with a new heart. And the Spirit empowers you as you are being sanctified. And remember, that's a work of God's grace. So adopt your new and true identity. You are a loved child of God and believe and live in that good news. Why did he do it? I don't know. I certainly wouldn't have chosen me. Or you. Or any of us. The more we get to know one another, the more we see how we fall short, right? We deserve not grace, but condemnation. But in grace, in Christ, you've come to faith because God's at work in you. And you are who he says you are in Christ Jesus. Forgiven, righteous, adopted, loved, pursued. He will finish the good work. He, every soul, we'll see this in chapter 8. And you can go ahead and read it if you want to over there. Every soul he justifies, he glorifies. Because it's his work and he will finish it. You're no longer under the law. The law is no longer your master. Christ is your master who has led you in the paths of joyful obedience to God. Now the law is an accompanying, loving, moral guide for you that shows you what it looks like to love the Lord and to love the neighbor and amped up in Christ to love one another the way he has loved you. Well, hopefully this helps you understand, better understand what it means to not be under law but be under grace. We're going to talk more about these things as we move forward. But hopefully this has just added a little bit of fuel to the fire of understanding verse 14. I'll just read it and I'm done. Sin will have no dominion over you. You who? You believer. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe your truth. <clears throat> help us to own our identity in Christ. Help us to love and honor you because you've loved us first. Help us to realize that the Christian life is growth in grace. That we're not, we're not perfect yet, but we should be growing in following Jesus. Growing in loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, growing in loving our neighbor, growing in loving one another. Search us and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, and lead us in the way everlasting. God, I pray for those this morning who don't know you, who maybe slept through this or, or don't understand it or don't like it or, or I don't know. We pray that we know that all who are yours you will bring to yourself. We pray for those. We don't know who they are. We pray that you might plant gospel seeds in hearts. That you might bring souls to faith. And we know, Lord, that as a believer, none of our time in your word is wasted. So even if we are chafing under it or not fully paying attention to it, your spirit will take your word and do your work. So, so convert and sanctify your church, Lord. Make us diligent students of your word. Help us to love and honor you because you have loved and honored and saved us in Christ. 
Help us to adopt the fact and understand what Paul is unfolding, our union with Christ. That we died in Christ, that we were raised with Christ, and that now your purpose in us is newness of life because we're new creatures with new hearts and this power of the Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And your word points us in the right direction, rightly applied. So help us, Lord, to interpret your word. Help us to interpret your commandments through and in light of Christ. And because we're believers by your grace, purpose to walk in these paths of righteousness and to be light and salt in, salt in this culture that has abandoned you. Convert our government leaders, Lord. This is, the, this is the most wicked government we've had yet in the White House. And that's saying a lot. That is saying a lot. But down through into the House and into the Senate and in, in, out into the states, Lord, and among the people, Lord, send revival in your church and send your gospel forth anew that souls might be converted and turned to you. And stop legislating sin. And repent and maybe start legislating righteousness again. But Lord, may we see it as an us first problem. The answer is just not better people in government. It's repentance. It's repentance of a people, therefore repentance of a nation. But help us to bring it all the way down into our personal lives this morning. To own what is true of us in Christ. Help us, Father, to love you, to trust you as we are tossed to and fro by the waves of living in this world, to rest in you, Lord Jesus, and to live for your glory. So, Lord, do a, do a mighty work in us with your truth that we might be lights. Shining lights, lights like Christ in our families, in our neighborhood, in this culture and country, that we might be, as Corey's been challenging us, faithful to you, Lord Jesus, who have authority in heaven and earth, all authority, who've given us your gospel and told us to take it. So help us to take it to those around us who don't know you. Bless and build your church. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the glorious truth that we're not under law but under grace. We thank you for your salvation and pray that you'll be honored with our lives. It is in Jesus' holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing one more song.